Well, thank you, Jeremy, for your testimony. It was indeed like cold water to a weary soul. I was really encouraged. Thank God for you, brother. And uh, it is our prayer that God would grant you grace to grow in Him. And we would glorify God together. We would serve Him for a long time. Well, praise God how God is building His church. Living stones, one by one, God saves transforms, sanctifies, and building us up together into Him who is the head, that is Christ, and to be um, just a part of that great work that God is doing is, I'm sure, for you as it is for us, a tremendous blessing. Well, to our study in the Gospel of John, we are on a snail's pace through this passage, 22 through verse 30. It is our third sermon in verse 27. Third and final sermon on verse 27. Next week is verse 28. Um, and the whole, our studies thus, thus far has been about how the Christian life is not about accumulating a lot of information and truths and doctrines. It's not godliness simply through knowledge, but it's godliness through knowing a few truths. few simple, basic, glorious truths. And having that... <clears throat> Um, bear root deeply in our hearts and having those truths, simple truths, transform us. Let me read again Piper's quote from Don't Waste Your Life. He writes, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in this world are not the people who have mastered many things but are those who have been mastered by a few things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ, you don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a nice school. No, instead, you have to know a few Great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious truths and be set on fire by them. End quote. Pastor Piper is saying, it is not about how much you know, but about how much of you is captive to these few truths. So thus far, we've studied three heart-shattering truths in the past few weeks. The first one was that in the world there are only two categories of people. Christians and non-Christians. A child of light, child of darkness, weed or tear, either for Christ or against Christ. No other category. No other uh, fact, class that has no significance. Only two categories exist in the world. The second truth we studied was that Christians belong to Christ. <clears throat> that Christ is our owner. <clears throat> because He purchased us. Because He chose us. And because the Father gave the elect to His own Son. And then last week, we studied the watershed doctrine. The doctrine of unconditional elect. Unconditional election. Where Christ says in verse 26 and 27, He tells the Pharisees, You do not believe. Even though I testify to my own deity, the fact that I am the Messiah, the Anointed One, 
And even though my miracles testify to my identity, you do not believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. Their essence comes before their lack of faith. And then he turns to his sheep and he says, My sheep, they know my voice. What is he saying? He says, My sheep, they believe in me. They are not Christ's sheep because they believe. It's the opposite. They believe because they are Christ's sheep. So we looked at the unconditional, un, we looked at unconditional election, that third truth. Now today, just one truth for this morning. It is arguably the simplest, yet the most controversial truth in the church today. And I believe that this is the truth most rejected at Cornerstone Bible Church. I, I believe that. It is the most, it is the one truth that is rejected by many people at Cornerstone. You know, we have a great premium on unity at Cornerstone. And we teach some strong doctrines, right? I mean, we have no problems about teaching God's sovereignty, the depravity of man, unconditional election, about the charismatic issue, men's and women's roles. But today's truth is the one that's been railed against most in our church. And I believe all the flock shepherds, Gary Dale, Mike Costura, Huey, Bent, Bob, they will all agree with me that this is one issue that people have directly rejected, directly uh, cast aside right before us. And here is the truth from verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The final truth from verse 27 comes from the last three words, they follow me. And the truth is this, it's that Christians obey Christ. Christians obey Christ. Think about that. My sheep, they know my voice. I know them. I'm my sheep. They follow me. They obey me. The truth is that Christians obey the Bible. Period. This is what all Christians do. If you're a believer, if you're a part of Christ's flock, you follow Christ. Isn't that radical? Isn't that unbelievable? It is controversial and one of the most rejected truths in Christianity today that Christians actually obey Scripture. That's what believers do. Right? Birds fly, fish swim, Christians obey. Right? I want you guys to go home and tell your parents. Go home. This is a truth to be shared. Go and tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell your neighborhood secret sensitive church. Right? Go tell everyone who will listen and tell your own heart that this is biblical Christianity. That Christians obey Christ. Isn't that incredible? In the epistles, Paul calls believers to obey. Right? That's Paul's perspective of Christianity. And every morning, every Sunday morning, I get up and I exhort you and I exhort my heart to obey Christ. Right? And even in the Gospels, Christ turns to the masses and He calls them to obedience. But from God's perspective of discipleship, 
It's black and white. Christians follow Christ. That is why, from a biblical perspective, I do not understand when Christians do not obey Christ. When Christians won't obey Christ. Because Christians obey Christ. Right? Doesn't make sense. That's what Christ says right here. My sheep follow me. So if you're part of the flock, you follow Christ. Some common excuses are, obedience to Christ is optional. So many professing believers see obedience as an option in the Christian faith. In fact, day by day, decision by decision, they decide, should I obey Christ or not? And they make thousand and one Christian decisions every day. And sometimes they choose to obey, and sometimes they do not. Well, it's, they must not realize that Christians obey Christ. Or another excuse is, circumstances won't permit me to obey. I'm a victim, James. It's not me. I want to obey. But it's the circumstance. It's, it's, it's my society. It's my culture. It's my family. It's my upbringing. It's my parents. I can't obey. Well, then you're, you're saying God is not true. You're saying the Bible is false. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will not put you in a place where you will have to disobey Christ. No. At every point of temptation there is a way out of obedience to Christ. He will never put you in a place where sin is the only option. The Bible promises that. Or some say I don't feel like obeying. I'm a victim of my emotions. No. Christians obey Christ. I believe Christians struggle to obey maybe primarily for two, two primary reasons. They have a wrong understanding of faith and a wrong understanding of grace. They don't understand what faith means. Go to John 10, verse 4. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Know his voice means faith, right? So the sheep follow Christ because they know his voice. They believe in Christ. Bonhoeffer said this, and I'm going to read a lengthy quote from him later on from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. I mean, this one quote is worth the price of the book, where he says, to believe is to obey, and to obey is to believe. If you say you believe, but you're not obeying Christ, you're not believing in Christ. Obedience to Christ is a proof of genuine faith in Christ. And it's biblical. John fourteen twenty one. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me, we love my Father, and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. First John chapter two, verses four, five, and six. 
the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, the liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as he did. Also consider 1 John 3, 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. It's not about perfection as a Christian, but about the direction of one's life. If you trust in Christ, your direction is one of obedience. You don't continue to sin. You continue to obey. Not perfectly, but your direction is towards Christ. Secondly, many believers, I, I, I would have to conclude, they have a wrong understanding of grace. They see grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? It's like you won the immunity challenge in Survivor, and so you're immune. Uh, you won't, it's, 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 you're, you're in for next round. It's a license to sin. License to toy with temptation. Well, during my college years, I read Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, a German pastor during the reign of, of Hitler. And because of his work of rescuing Jews, he was arrested and under the direct orders of Himmler, was killed, martyred in a concentration camp, along with two of his sons and two of his sons-in-law. When he was working in Germany to proclaim the gospel, trying to rescue the Jew, Jewish people from the, the, the Nazi regime, he saw the passivity, the weakness, the cowardice of the Protestant church in Germany. They were the heirs of Luther. Luther's courage, Luther's boldness was lost to them. And when he saw the disobedience of the Protestant church in Germany, this is what he wrote. And this is his conclusion. He, say, he believed that the, the church in Germany is disobeying Christ because they don't understand what grace is. He wrote that the Protestant church in Germany is mired in cheap grace. Somewhat lengthy. He wrote, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, so we can remain as before. It says, let the Christian rest content with his worldliness. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. 
We have gathered like eagles around the carcass of cheap grace, and there we have drunk of the poison which has killed the life of following Christ. The call to follow Jesus is the narrow way is hardly ever heard. What has happened to all those warnings of Luther against preaching the gospel in such a manner as to make men rest secure in their ungodly living? Today, instead of opening up the way to Christ, our preaching has closed it. Instead of calling us to follow Christ, it has hardened us to disobedience. To put it quite simply, we must admit that we no longer stand in the path of true discipleship. We confess that although our church is orthodox as far as our doctrines of grace is concerned, we are no longer sure that we are members of a church which, which follows its Lord. Costly grace, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. Surely grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Christ. And then he says, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means simply that you follow Christ, that you obey his commands. A right understanding of biblical faith and a right understanding of grace are key components of that. And I think there are three more components. If you will turn with me to Luke chapter 14, here you will find, I believe, the three key components of obeying Jesus Christ. Our Lord here in Luke 14 gets to the heart of Christianity so that we won't make hundred decisions in a day whether to follow Christ or not. He calls Christians, he calls people actually to make once and for all decisions. Decide for yourself whom you will follow. He gets to the heart of the matter. He goes for the jugular. Deal with the heart of it. And daily be reminded of the decision. Now in verse 25, we find our Lord... Um, going towards Jerusalem. He is headed to Calvary. And a large crowd of people are following Christ. Our Lord turns and He addresses this great multitude. He stops them dead in their tracks. And the words here of, of our Lord are, are stunning. I mean, there is a reeling effect by the masses. You can almost sense it. It was shocking. It was, it was powerful, the things that he required of his disciples. He called them to follow him, but he had three requirements. That the, the potential disciple must love Christ above one's family. Secondly, must love Christ above oneself. Thirdly, must give up all his possessions. Three requirements of discipleship. Outside of them, 
You cannot be a disciple of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. Because when these three requirements are met, then you understand Christians obey Christ. You have died to yourself. You no longer matter. You live for Him. The imperative, the non-negotiable in life is not comfort, it's not happiness, it's not self-fulfillment. The non-negotiable in life becomes following Christ, obeying Christ. Look at the first requirement, priority of loving Christ above one's family. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. In verse 26, we have the first tension. It's radical. It takes us by surprise. Christ says, unless you hate your mom, unless you hate your sister, unless you hate your children, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow me. You cannot be a Christian. Is he serious here? What is he talking about? One commentator titled this section, quote, how to hate your wife. Right? Very interesting take on this passage. But that is not what our Lord is saying here. All the husbands, that's not what the Lord is saying. In Matthew 10, 37-38, our Lord explains what He means. He said, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So hate here means loving less than. Our Lord is saying, if we want to follow Christ, He must have supremacy in all our relationships. We must love Christ more than our parents, more than our husbands or wives, more than our even children. Right? That's Christ's standard. We can't be revisionist historians here. I can't. Uh, change the message to make it more palatable to the modern audience. I don't have that authority. I am but a messenger. And that is what Christ said. That is what Christ meant. And He calls all disciples, potential disciples, that He must have the supremacy. Consider those He commands His disciples to hate. They're all people. They are all people we would normally, naturally love. They are relatives, they are family. There seems to be a deliberate, descending order. Parents are first, then are mates, then children, then siblings last. Christ says he must have priority. It reminds us of Genesis 22, when God tested Abraham. And he tells Abraham, sacrifice to me, your son, whom you love. First time in the Bible the word love is found is in Genesis 22. And that love is not a love between husband and wife. It's not between siblings, not between friends. It is between father and son. Particularly a father's love to his only son. And God commands Abraham, sacrifice him. On Mount Moriah to test his love for God. And Abraham passed his test. He proved his faith by obedience, by going through and 
and attempting to sacrifice his only son, were it not for the angel of God intervening, it would have been done. Well, a few questions for all of us in this area. Let's test our hearts. Who rules your life? Is it non-negotiable in life, maybe not to displease your parents? I'd rather displease God than displease my mom or my dad, my wife, my husband. Who rules your world? Whose opinion is most important to you? Who do you live to please? God or family? Is your family or members of your family keeping you from obeying the clear commands of Scripture? Are you willing to stand against your parents, siblings, husband and wife because of Christ and His Word? Are you standing for Christ in the biblical areas? And I emphasize biblical areas. In the Lord, scripturally. When they press you to think unbiblically. When they warn you about not giving your life over to Christ completely. Warn you about ministry and evangelism. About devotion to God. Maybe they even encourage you to participate in sinful activities. Where is your priority of love? Is it with Christ? Look at the second requirement. The priority of loving Christ above even oneself. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Not just relationally, but even himself. Even himself. Verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after, comes after me cannot be my disciple. Now in our day, there are many wrong views of the cross abound. This verse has been psychologized. Right? So, we need to carry our cross. And people say, you know, what's your cross? Oh, my cross is my boss. Man, I have to bear with him every day. Or my cross is my husband. Man, you don't know what I go through. Or my cross is my mother-in-law, right? She comes over and I have to carry that burden every day. No, that's not what Christ is saying. For the original hearers, they understood clearly what he meant by this. The picture of a condemned criminal carrying his cross to the place of his execution was a common sight for those following Christ. A condemned criminal was forced to carry his own cross, the instrument of his own death. Knowing that he's a dead man walking, he would not return from this final walk. To take the cross was to carry that horizontal beam out to the side of the execution, usually past a jeering mob, Christ is telling His disciples that they must be ready to face literal scorn on the road to eventual martyrdom. It is the willingness to face suffering, face shame, persecution, and even death because of a surpassing love of Christ. That's what Christ demands. Your love for Christ is so intense. Your passion for Him is so strong. Concern for self is set aside. 
That's what Paul said in Acts 20, 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. In Acts 21, when Paul was set to go to Jerusalem, the prophet Agabus tied his hands together. And in a visual uh, illustration depicted to Paul, this is what they'll do to you, Paul. They're going to arrest you, bind, bound you like an animal. And Paul said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the second requirement. Let me just apply to this to us today. Do we consider being hated because of Christ our joy? In Acts 5.41, disciples went home rejoicing because they were kind of worthy to suffer for His name. When they were lashed and beat up and they didn't deny the Lord, they went home rejoicing. Because, man, we're worthy of Christ. We're worthy of bearing His name. When you're persecuted for your faith, when you're challenged, when you're suffering, when you're ashamed for your faith in Christ, do you delight in it? Do you find the satisfaction of glorying in the cross of Christ? The final one is the priority of loving Christ above one's possessions. In verses 28 the 32, he uses two illustrations about a guy who builds a tower and doesn't have enough to finish, so it becomes a laughing stock of the city. Right? You ever start a project and not finish? You know, when you're single, it's a lot easier, but when you're married, there's an accountability, and she sees it every day, right? Well, let's say, you know, be an entrepreneur, right? You fail, you fail at a store, and everyone knows that you failed. Christ says you should count the cost before you start to build. Or a general of an army goes against the army and, and he didn't count. And he realizes he's outnumbered two to one. To be wise, you go and make a treaty so you will not be humiliated. Likewise, Christ says, count the cost. Don't make an emotional, impulsive decision to follow Christ because Christians follow Christ. Christians obey Christ. Know the cost involved. And he says in verse 33, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Now this is the second tension of, the, of this passage. The first tension is hate. Second tension is what is this? Give up all possessions? Does this mean that Christians have to uh, divest themselves of all their of uh, everything they own? No. Um, our Lord was speaking literally here. He was talking to the disciples. Of the Gospels and Acts, their narratives, their historical account of what happened. And for the original disciples, for all those that followed Christ during His incarnation, that was a requirement. That's why um, Peter right, and John, they left everything. Luke 5.11. Luke 5.28, he was a tax collector. He got up and left everything. Um... Matthew 19.27, Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will be there for us? Lord, I don't have anything. 
You said, give up all our possessions. So I did, not following you. If you die on the cross, what's going to happen to me? The rich young ruler, same thing, Luke 18, unless you go, give everything you have to the poor. You cannot be my disciple. He wasn't being figurative, he was being literal. But that was for Christ's ministry during his incarnation. It was a unique ministry. We know this because in the book of Acts, believers had possessions. Barnabas is a clear example of that. In Acts 4, 36 and 37, it says he sold some of the field that he had and gave the proceeds to the church. He didn't sell everything. In fact, we see throughout the New Testament, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Philippi, the church at Corinth, they gave, not everything, but they gave as offering. So, so the direct command to the disciples in Luke 15, Luke 14, is give up everything. But for us, it means the priority of Christ above our possessions. To love Christ more than things. We are to live and treat our possessions with this mindset that our love is reserved for Christ. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 Timothy 6.11 The love of money is the root of all evil. Our Lord goes to jugular issues. He calls them to think through the high cost of following Him. Love of Christ above family and friends. Love of Christ above self. Love of Christ above possessions. See, maybe this is why Christians don't obey Christ. See, maybe they misunderstand faith, they misunderstand grace, but they've never gone through Luke 14. Luke 9, Matthew 16, and count up the cost. They didn't realize that Christians obey Christ. That's what Christians do. They didn't, they didn't think through what it means to be a follower of Christ. Here it is. Christ says, if you follow Christ falsely, verses 34 and 35, it's good for nothing. There is no value. There is no value of following Christ without these requirements. It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out to be trampled upon. He or she is a useless person, a person that is good for nothing. Now on a national level, our Lord is speaking to Israel calling Israel to follow Him. On a local level, He's speaking to the future church. He's speaking to us as a corporate body for us to follow Him. Finally, He's speaking to us on an individual level. Calling us individually to follow Christ. Knowing what it means to be a Christian. A few final thoughts. Again, I know it's a simple truth. But to me, and to you too, it's a powerful truth, is it not? Christians follow Christ. Christians obey, period. And I know you will say to me, because I say to my own heart, but James, no one obeys Christ perfectly. 
You are right. I don't obey Christ perfectly. I disobey Christ every day. But the question is, how do you feel about your disobedience? How do you respond when you disobey? Do you say, well, it's optional. You know, come on. You can't obey everything. So I'll try my best. And you know, if it works out, great. If not, you know, hey, I gave it the whole college try. Is that your attitude? Or is your attitude, I'm a victim. Nothing else I could, I could have done. Right? Everybody would agree it was because of my circumstances. Or are you going to be like David? Psalm 119, 136. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. And I believe he was looking at his own life. He said, I cry with a fountain of tears because in my own life, in my own heart, the law of God is not obeyed. Are you broken over your sinfulness? Christians, one label for them was the repentant. For the Christian, repentance is a one-time act, but it's also a daily reality because of our sinfulness, because of our disobedience, because we don't obey Christ. We're daily mourning, broken, contrite over our sins. Are you repentant? Is that a mark of your life? Grieving at your faithlessness? If you understand that Christians obey Christ, then you will, and I will. Secondly, when we obey Christ, it is nothing to boast about. It is nothing to boast about. Luke 17, 7-10. Christ says, suppose you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. When he, when he comes in from the field... Would the master say, come now and sit down to eat, rest? Or would the master say, okay, prepare dinner for me, get, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink, after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Christ says, no. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. As Christians, when we obey, that's just basic minimum. That's just what Christians do. You know, people say, man, I worked eight hours yesterday. You're supposed to work eight hours. You know, that's what workers do. Or, you know, moms say, man, I fed my son yesterday. Man, I clothed him. That's right. (laughs) You're his mom. You're her mom. That's what moms do. Right? Christians obey Christ. When we obey Christ, it's not something to boast about. It's not a big thing. That's what Christians do. We follow Christ wherever He leads us. And then finally, it is the only life for the Christian to travel on the Calvary Road. It is a joyous road. It is the only satisfying road for the believer. For the believer to follow to follow Christ in the Calvary Road is not suffering; it's joy, it's a privilege. 
Piper says, what a tragic waste when people turn away from the Calvary road of love and suffering. All the riches of the glory of God in Christ are on that road. All the sweetest fellowship with Jesus is there. All the treasures of assurance. All the ecstasies of joy. All the clearest sightings of eternity. All the noblest camaraderie. All the humblest affections. All the most tender acts of forgiving kindness. All the deepest discoveries of God's word are there. All the most earnest prayers, they are all on the Calvary road where Jesus walks with His people. Take up your cross and follow Jesus on this road and this road alone. Life is Christ and death is gain. Life on every other road is wasted. Bonhoeffer wrote that book and he was martyred in a concentration camp. And here is an SS prison doctor describing Bonhoeffer's death. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Bonhoeffer was doing what Christians do. Nothing more, nothing less. He was following Christ. He was obeying Christ. Because that's what Christians do. Let's pray. Lord, if there is one truth that I pray will set my heart on fire, and that was said, our church on fire is this truth, that Christians obey Christ. That you are our chief love above our families, even ourselves, and above all our possessions. And because you are our supreme treasure and prize, we follow you at all costs. Lord, that it be a non-negotiable for every believer at our church to follow you, to obey you, because that's what we were chosen for. That's what we were called to. That's what we were saved to. That is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that, that, we are, that we are transformed towards. And in our glory, we will obey you perfectly. Lord, it is our prayer that we would strive towards obedience because of that because that's the reality according to the scriptures. In Jesus name. Amen.